This is a recording for the Church of the Resurrection. We are an Anglican church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Our worship includes the proclamation of God's Word, the regular celebration of the Holy Communion, and an expectation that the Holy Spirit is active in the church and our lives. Please join us every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Boys and Girls Club on 824 East 14th Street. Father in heaven, send your spirit in this place. Open our hearts to hear your word, both proclaimed in this sermon, but also as just has been read um, to the congregation. Uh, Holy Spirit, living breath of God, um, breathe new life into our weary souls, our weary, our, our anxious souls, and our hungry souls, Lord. Give us the food that we need through the power of your word, uh, through the power of Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever been in a group setting where uh, an icebreaker was used? Uh, we've used them at, at various church events, but most events we kind of allow conversation to just be a natural thing. However, at, at one of our recent uh, newcomers' dinners, uh, for some reason, uh, the topic of where a child was conceived came up. And I was like, that would be a really good icebreaker question. And I'm, I'm not going to say who shared this. It was just, it was really funny. I was like, yeah, that would be a great icebreaker question for us in the future. And I think actually he shared it not only once, but twice. <laughs> I remember back in college, I was part of a, a club called Philosophy Club. Uh, and last night, as I was trying to remember the story, my wife made the joke, I'm married to a guy who was part of a philosophy club. Uh, she was a little bit embarrassed by that. But they had an icebreaker at the beginning of one of our meetings. And uh, it was just a silly icebreaker. It was, it was a chance to, to go around. Everyone would say their name. And you would have to answer the question, if you were a fork, where would you be? And believe it or not, like philosophy club, believe it or not, was small enough that we had enough time for everyone to go around and say, if I were a fork, I would be in chocolate cream pie. You know, it just tells you something about, like, what you like or your sense of humor. If I were a fork, I would be in a bratwurst. Well, we got around to the philosophy professor who, uh, who was, like, the uh, faculty advisor to, to, the, uh, to this organization on campus. And he thought for a second, and then he laughed, and he said, if I were a fork, I'd be in a pickle. Get it? If I were a fork, I'd be in a pickle. Well, um... Jacob. <laughs> Jacob is in a pickle today. He's in a real pickle. Would you turn your bulletins to the Old Testament reading that starts on page 7? I know there's no page number on 7. Uh, but today we have Jacob who's in a major pickle. Um, our reading today starts with Jacob sending messengers to Esau. And they are to say to Esau, I have oxen and donkeys and, and male servants and flocks and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. Notice he's not actually offering these as gifts, but he's trying to say, I'm, I've made something of myself in my time away. Um, and what does he hear back? Uh, so he's kind of communicating his wealth and like, you may have grown up, I've grown up too. Uh, it's not clear why, but, but the messengers return in, ver in verse 6 and they say, we came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. If this were a movie, there would be a record scratch and a freeze frame 
And Jacob, as a narrator, would say, you're probably wondering how I got here. <laughs> Where my brother's sending 400 men, presumably, to kill me. Um, of course, you may be wondering who Jacob is and how he got here. Some of you guys know your Bibles cover to cover. Some of you know them really well. Others of you are newer to the faith. Um, let me do our be my best to catch us up. This is a reading from the Old Testament book of Genesis. Genesis is the book of beginnings. Uh, the, the book in the Old Testament um, that uh, communicates to us as Christians um, what it is that we are to know about the origins of the world and God's people and God's actions in the world. That God created everything, God created the world and everything in it, and he called it good. And through Adam's sin, we fell into sin. And God um, has a plan to restore creation to himself. And God came to Abraham and said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And God declared his covenant with Abraham and declared that he would uh, make them a great nation and that through that nation, um, they would be a blessing to the earth. And through that nation, in fact, um, Jesus would come. And uh, so we have Abraham, who has a son, Isaac, and Isaac has a son named Jacob, and that's Jacob here. And Jacob, uh, you may know the story of Jacob and Esau, you may not. Jacob and Esau were twins. And to say they didn't get along is a bit of an understatement. That in fact, we have an account in the Bible of them wrestling inside of their mother's uh, stomach. Um, not stomach, but her womb. Uh, that they're wrestling. And then when they were born, Esau was born first. But Jacob came out grasping his heel. That, uh, and uh, so Esau being the firstborn, of course, is a big deal. Um, in this culture, that he receives a double portion of the inheritance and, in fact, receives a special blessing from his father Isaac, a blessing which Jacob tricked his brother out of. And so we have G uh, Esau, the manly hunter, a very hairy, um, really hairy, as in, like, when Jacob tries to impersonate him to his blind father, he puts goatskins on his hands. His hands are just, just hairy as goatskins, I guess. Um, and we have these brothers that, that they grow up, and, and so Esau is out hunting, um, and Jacob is back cooking. And I don't, I don't have a good sense of, of how demeaning this is for Jacob uh, in this culture. It, it, it just seems like Esau's the alpha, and Jacob is kind of this more timid. He, he's, he's kind of a mama's boy, um, and uh, he, he cooks, and he's, he, he doesn't have hairy knuckles, and I guess that's a bad thing. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, Jacob steals the birthright from his older brother, Esau. Uh, Esau comes back from hunting and is very hungry. And Jacob is, he's like famished. Jacob's like, all right, I'll give you some food. Yeah, I've been working here on this stew all day. What about it? I'm a man too. But I'm going to give you some soup if you give me your birthright. And Esau's like, I don't even care. Like, have you ever been that hungry where you don't even care? Just whatever. I'll agree to anything. Give me the bowl of soup. Um, and he took the soup. But it, it, it was clear that Jacob didn't see this as like a good square deal because Jacob deceptively, it wasn't like, uh, he, as he knows, like this was a non-transferable thing. So uh, while Esau was kind of doing his thing, he put the skins on, snuck into Isaac's tent and received the blessing. And of course, when Esau found out, he was murderous with rage and, and Jacob had to leave. And God came to Jacob after many, many, many years, he had built himself up into this big tribe. He has, he has wives and children and servants and, and, and herds of animals. Um, and God comes to him and he says, I want you to return to your people so that God's purposes can work through them. And of course, this, uh, 
This is a tricky story. All of, all of this Jacob and Esau stuff is really tricky for Sunday school teachers um, because uh, Sunday school teachers um, sometimes in churches try to use the Old Testament as uh, kind of tales for morality. And we do our best. Um, uh, we see that as a misuse of the Old Testament. We're not, we're not saying be like Jacob and be deceptive. We're not saying anything about that. And in fact, uh, today, we're not saying that there is a like, that we try to exemplify either Esau or Jacob. What we see is depictions uh, of, of God at work in the world and depictions of flawed people and part of God's plan, that God's plan was to, to, to work through these people. God's plan was through the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob um, to become incarnate and to save the world from our sins. So I got there, yeah, we were a little bit off. So let's return to the story. Um, Jacob didn't tell his dad. Um, okay, so, so God told him to return to the land of his family. As he approached home, we see the reality of the consequences of Jacob's behavior towards Esau really build up some anxiety in Jacob's mind. He knows that he has wronged Esau, and so he prepares. He even separates I'm sorry, we didn't, we didn't get there yet. Um, but he's prepared, he's prepared to pay the penalty, uh, whatever that is. And verse 7 tells us he was greatly afraid and he was distressed. He was distressed to learn. He wasn't sure what to say. Like, so he communicated this message, and the message he gets back is Esau's coming, and he's bringing 400 men. And, and what that sounds like is not um, a peaceful, uh, a peaceful, like, I'm bringing my 400 strongest armed men to greet you with a big hug. That's not what it sounds like. The more astute among you may have noticed that this reading is chopped. That we have the first few verses, and we skip a bunch. This text comes from our lectionary, and I honestly don't know why those who are responsible for choosing these readings have chopped this reading like this because I actually like the intervening verses and I'm going to tell you a little bit about them. I love them. What do you suppose Jacob does in this trying time? It's not in your bulletins. I'll, I'll, he prays. It's like, Esau's coming with 400 men to kill me. I'm going to pray. And here's his prayer. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I've become two camps. So there's an acknowledgement there of how the Lord has blessed him materially. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. The form of this prayer is really interesting. Um, o God, my father, Abraham. O God, my father, Isaac. O Lord, We see a triple petition to God, not just God, God, 
God of my grandfather and God of my father, the God who made a covenant with your people. The one, and then finally, the one true God that reigns above all, the living God, who has chosen to work through this bloodline to bless and redeem the world. And then in his prayer, he points out to God that he's in his predicament because God was the one who told him to return to the land of his people. He says, God, you told me to come, here I am. And then he acknowledges, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness you have shown to your servant. It sounds a little bit like our prayer of humble access, does it not? Every Sunday before we come forward for communion, uh, we, we pray a prayer that, that acknowledges that we are able to come and have this meal, that we are, come, we are able to come and receive the gifts of God from the people of God, not because of our own merit, but in spite of our sin, that we, in fact, are not worthy to gather up the crumbs under the table, but we are invited as guests to this feast. And we say, God, you're the character, God whose character it is, it is always to have mercy. Friends, do you realize the beauty of this? The, the beauty of our glorious birthright in Christ, that though we are not worthy to pick up the crumbs under the table, that we are welcomed. That though we were born into sin, that we've been saved from the power of sin. And much like God saved his people, Noah and his family, in an ark from the waters of the flood, that through the waters of baptism, that he has united us to him. We've been welcomed into the household of God and seated at the table, and we get to receive God's good gifts, though we are not worthy to receive them. It's amazing. And I don't know why Jacob prays this prayer. And I don't think we should extrapolate any sort of theological principle from it. Because would God have violated God's covenant towards his people had he not prayed this prayer? No, God is true to his word. God is true to his promises. So in Jacob's time of anxiety... Was he assuring himself of who God was? Was this therapy for Jacob to say, okay, God, I'm scared, but you, I'm, I'm being obedient, and God, you promised all these, and he lists these things, and he lists the character of God. Was this prayer just for the sake of Jacob? We don't know. We don't know. But Jacob is on the ball about God's steadfast love and faithfulness. And these are words that re are recurring words throughout the Old Testament of God's covenantal promise, of that God is covenantally bound to his people. His steadfast love and faithfulness. That he has promised a solution for our sin and that he would provide the solution. And his commitment to us comes from his character because he is reliable. His promise is everlasting from generation to generation. The prayer that Jacob offers the Lord isn't him twisting God's arm to say, God, you know, you remember your promise, and if I don't remind you, uh, you're going to forget. It's not necessary. God remembered Jacob. Believe that. God remembered him, and he called him home, and he was going to watch over him because that's who God is. What this prayer is, is a prayer of lament. Jacob found himself in a difficult place. God called him to return home, and there was a, a price for this obedience. 
that we are, we are saved from the eternal consequences of our sin, but there are still earthly consequences for our sin. So if we do someone dirty like Jacob did Esau, they, there may be consequences for us. People will be angry at us. And here Jacob is, is, is following the Lord's call and his brother, who he cheated, is coming after him with 400 men. And he is up close to, to, to what he thinks is his imminent death. In literature and in film, we see multiple examples of, of the preparation of the night before an attack comes. Um, recently, I, I watched The Two Towers um, and there's that battle at Helm's Deep, and, and you spend a little bit of time, and this is actually not a very good time for the army that's preparing for Saruman's army to come and attack them, because they're just like, we got old men, we got kids, like, how are we going to defend? The night before an attack is a scary thing, because the anticipation uh, of the attack. And here we see Jacob pray a prayer of lament that is very similar to the Psalms of lament. Friends, if you haven't prayed a prayer of lament, let us do so often. The Psalms offer the whole spectrum of emotion. The, our Psalms, we are not a people who are just like God is great all the time and we are always happy. The Psalms, in fact, uh, show us this pattern of praying when we're happy, of praying when we're sad. They show us a pattern of how to pray when we're sad. we see people who experience disappointment, sadness, loneliness, forsakenness, and grief. And we ought to be able to pray those ways and not pray in a fake way. You know, when we pray to God, God knows what we're feeling. So we don't put on a false face to God. God, I'm really happy, even though I'm really lonely, even though I'm really broken, even though I'm really for feeling forsaken. We pray prayers of lament. We bring these emotions to the Lord we bring them to the Lord who cares about us. We bring them to the Lord who cares about us and who has covenantly, covenantly bound himself to us, who has bound to us in a steadfast, steadfast love and faithfulness. A steadfast love that never changes. And to continue with the text that you do have in your bulletin, let's turn to the next page. <clears throat> There is yet another confounding story. Jacob was alone, and we're told a man wrestled with him until the break of day. And what a mysterious way that this story is narrated to us. That we're not told the identity of this man until the end. And that kind of brings us into the story so we get a sense of Jacob. Just all he knows is this guy showed up. He may think it's Esau. He's not sure, but he wrestles with this man all night. And neither could gain an advantage, it says. And his opponent noticed this. And so he touched Jacob's hip, putting it out of joint. And we see a little bit later, um, not, not in, in today's passage, but a little bit later um, in Genesis, that, that he, has this, he limps away and kind of has this lifelong limp, this mark from this encounter. But they wrestle to a draw. And even after this injury, even after his hip is pushed out of joint, it doesn't turn the tide of the battle. They're still at a standstill. But I mean, who are we kidding here? You already got this read to you. You know the identity of the man that he's wrestling with. It is, in fact, the Lord himself. It's God. Mysteriously, it's, it's, it's God that Jacob is wrestling with. And as the light is coming, his opponent, who the, the narrative doesn't tell us who it is yet, says his opponent 
may not want him to learn his identity. He says, he says, um, he says, let me go, for the morning is coming, for the light is coming. So maybe he doesn't want his identity to be known. Or maybe it's a merciful thing for Jacob. Uh, God told Moses that no one can look on God and live. So maybe had morning come, had he looked on God, he, he may have died. We, we don't know. But at this point, Jacob may realize who he's contending with. Or not. But Jacob has this mysterious request. He says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And God doesn't immediately respond with a blessing. First, he asks his name, Jacob. God responds, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Boom. The narrator drops the boom and like reveals the story. He's been wrestling with God. What in the world does this all mean? Is there a, a moral lesson to take from this that we are ought to strive with God? Is, is, is it about us pinning God down and asking him to bless us? No, 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 no. Each commentary has a different idea, and the better commentaries list actually a bunch of different explanations for what exactly is going on here. And there's certainly parts of the Bible where I will uh, confidently say, this is why this is included in the Bible. Um, but one of the things here with, with these stories about Jacob and Esau um, is, is that they, they aren't uh, stories that are necessarily integral to, our, to God's salvation history. They're included sometimes, some of these odd details, um, because they're true and, and because the text is trustworthy. Um, and there's certain parts of the Bible where we know why that's there. I love how John tells us exactly why he wrote his book and why those things are there. And we get the luxury in John. John, John writes, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. These are written down so that you may know that he is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. In this reading, we're not given a clear indication of what in the world this is, of what happened, and there's certainly no like, obvious moral lesson here. That's okay. It's not always clear why God uh, works in these very specific ways. Instead, let us use this as an example of how to read the Old Testament, not looking for tales of morality to say we want to dare to be like Daniel or we want to avoid the behavior of this person. But we, uh, as we're in this season as a church, uh, I, we are encouraging each other to read the Bible every day. We don't want to ignore the first two-thirds of the Bible. We want to be able to pick up the Old Testament and have a good sense of what it is saying to us. And what we believe is the Old Testament is all about Jesus, that it is about God's salvation history, that we see that through this bloodline. Um, so yeah, it's really nice that in fact Esau came and it wasn't there to kill him, but in fact embraced him. But this isn't a, a morality tale to say, you too must forgive those who have wronged you. In fact, we find that elsewhere. That's not what we're seeing here. But in fact, oftentimes when we do read the Bible, we do open the Old Testament, um, we do ask uh, good questions to ask, is what does this say about God? And what does this say about us? So if we're ever confused by a text, what does this say about God? And what does this say about us? Well, we see God calling Jacob back to his people so that God can fulfill his promise through this line of Jacob. And we see Jacob terrified about his past deceit, about the earthly consequences of that deceit. 
He's terrified that Esau is going to kill him. And he prays for God's protection, and he asks for the Lord's blessing. So let us remember this day that though we are free from eternal consequences of sin, that we still uh, have to deal with the consequences here on earth of those that we have wronged. Let us remember that we ought to bring our whole range of emotions to God when we pray. And in fact, by praying to God, by remembering his steadfast love to us, oftentimes that reminds us of, of who he is and his character. Let us remember our God, the God who has given us the promise of his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards us. Let us remember that God who has welcomed us into his community through the line of Jacob.